thank you so much for the love that you have shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And Father, it's that love, that love of Christ that binds us together as one people, one church, one bride, your bride. So we ask you this morning, Lord, that you would uh, really make us sensitive to the words that we're about to look into and the letter that you wrote. And may we make the necessary personal applications as a corporate body and as individual believers as your Holy Spirit leads us. For we pray it in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. You've heard me say this before, the comic strip character that uh, made this popular saying, well, I guess not popular, but tongue-in-cheek. He says, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. <laughs> you feel that way sometimes, don't you? You've heard this one too before, I'm sure. And I've heard it more than I care to admit at times that the more I deal with people, the more I love my dog. It's not much question that people, given the right or should I say wrong set of circumstances, can rob us of our joy. There are times when it seems that we cannot work with other people. There are times when some of us feel that we can't even be around other people. I'd like to be able to tell you that this is limited to non-believers, but you and I both know that, sadly, it's a reality in the church as well. And I think it's easy to fall into the cynicism of our society and think perhaps that Christian unity is something that we will only experience in heaven. There is no shortage of examples to illustrate the fact that we are not immune, the church is not immune from the grip of disunity. And it shouldn't surprise us if we actually really analyze it and think about it. Because if the church is doing its job of effectively presenting the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ, we should count on a spiritual assault from the enemy. And the enemy of people's souls will not sit idly by when his domain is being infiltrated, and we can't either. What do you suppose people are looking for when they come face to face with the church of Jesus Christ? What do you suppose they're looking for? Some years ago, I read a piece of poetry that was sent to a church by a one young seeker. And I think it illustrates the extreme importance of how people view us. Her honest plea can be quickly summarized in a few of her poignant words of challenge to us. She says, do you know, do you understand that your words are his words? Your face, his face. To someone like me? Please be who you say you are. Please. Do you know, do you understand that you represent Jesus to me. What do you suppose people are looking for when they come face to face with the church of Jesus Christ? They want something trustworthy. They want something relational. They want something real. And the first question we need to ask ourselves then is what do people see when they look at us? And the answer is, or what should people see when they look at us? The answer is oneness in Christ. Unity, not uniformity, unity. 
True biblical community. Warren Wiersbe said that true spiritual unity is something that comes from within. It's a matter of the heart. Uniformity is the result from pressure without. Some of you have been in churches that really obsess with uniformity, haven't you? you know, look the same, talk the same. I can tell you that today's seeker of truth is looking for anything but uniformity. But true community is based on what is within, the common bond of Christ inside of us, the hope of glory, oneness of faith, oneness of heart, and that is relational, that is real, and that is trustworthy. That's what people ought to see when they see us, the people of Christ at Fayette. In the second chapter of Philippians, Paul addresses this very matter Writing from a Roman prison, he addresses a problem. Well, actually, the fourth chapter. We're going to go to the second chapter in the bulk of this message. But in the fourth chapter of Philippians, he addresses a problem that had affected their unity. Look at Philippians chapter 4 for, for a moment. First few verses there of that chapter. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers who na whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now, Paul clearly addresses a problem that was going on in the church here, and it was probably not a huge problem, a personality clash perhaps, but left unchecked, this rift could have become a full-blown faction. Now, please hear me well. I don't sense this morning a major division in this church. However, there are forces at work, as I've mentioned in the last few weeks, that will attempt to tear apart even the most closely knit ties. Do you agree? So I'm speaking to this issue as a matter of prevention. First, I want you to remember that Philippians is a letter of joy. It's a book of joy. The joyful promotion of the gospel is the major theme in this book. It permeates the entire letter. Let me suggest to you that in the opening verses of chapter 2, Paul's premise is that the best way to communicate the joy of Christ's salvation is through the unity of his people. Now go to chapter 2 for a moment, and let's look at the first four verses there. Therefore, Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Everyone wants unity, right? You want it? Everyone talks about the concept of community building in the church. Do you want it? But there aren't many people who truly understand it or are willing to play by its rules. 
Because true community building can be distilled into really two basic focal points according to this text in Philippians 2. Having the right motivation and maintaining the right mind. The right mindset. First, let's look at the motivation toward unity. Our motivation toward unity is basically rooted in our assurance in Christ. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, he says. Unity is possible, Paul says, because of four realities here that motivate us toward unity. Notice Paul's appeal here. He says, if therefore, if there is, if there is, if any... These are incentives, according to Paul. In Greek, in the Greek language, they're called, I'll give you a little lesson here, they're called first-class conditional clauses, okay? Which simply means this, that they imply something that is certain. It is certain. In other words, Paul is not appealing to something that might be true in them, hopeful ideas, products of wishful thinking. These things that Paul, Paul's writing about are true of believers. So in your Bibles, and some of your translations may have already done this, replace the word if with the word since. Okay? Therefore, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit... Since there is affection and compassion, then make my joy complete, Paul says. Paul is stating the way things are. He's saying, look, there's encouragement in Christ, isn't there? As Christians, isn't there? There's personal comfort in his love, right? You've experienced a wonderful sense of community in the Spirit. Am I right? Your love and compassion have never been more real, right? Then if all that's true, make my joy complete by sticking together. That's what he's saying. Listen to Eugene Peterson's rendering of this text in the message. He says, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if His love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care then do me a favor, he says, agree with each other, love each other, be deep-seated friends. Don't push your way up to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. That brings it into a little different light, doesn't it? There are four things that assure us that Christ lives in us here, and they motivate us toward unity. And they're very clearly outlined in this text, in this first verse. First of all, it's a comfort that exhorts us. If there is any, any encouragement in Christ, the word encouragement here has many, many nuances in the New Testament, and it means more than simply to soothe one another. The same word is used to refer to the Holy Spirit as our comforter elsewhere. The comfort that Christ gives through the Holy Spirit is more than just a soothing pat on the back. It also comes in the form of conviction. Remember that Christ said that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, would convict the world of sin, of judgment, 
as well as righteousness in John chapter 16. Sometimes the encouragement we receive in Christ does not always seem soothing, does it? Sometimes it's downright disruptive. But it is always encouragement designed to make us stronger Christ followers. Is that right? It motivates us to endure no matter what, to resist at all costs the temptation of breaking community and to overcome the sins that divide us. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about, we talked about doing the hard work of reconciliation and admonishing a friend, remember? If we will count on Christ, we can do the things Paul is about to describe to us. It's Christ's comfort that exhorts us to unity. Secondly, it's His love that consoles us. Therefore, if there is any encouragement of Christ in Christ, if there is any consolation of love. And the word consolation here means to exercise a gentle influence by words. Truthful counsel, which is done in the spirit of Christ's love, reassures people and motivates them towards unity. I want you to repeat after me. Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Go ahead and say it. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Now say with me Proverbs 15.4. Repeat after me. A soothing tongue is a tree of life. But perversion in it crushes the spirit. It's not just enough to repeat those words, but to live them. See, the love of Christ changes everything. Love of Christ changes everything. It redefines the whole relationship. It transforms people. It redefines relationships. It removes barriers. It reorients our vision. It annihilates rejection. It renews our hope. It revives our faith. It rescues souls. The presence and the sincere practice of biblical love reveals that Christ is in us, not just on our lips, but living in us. Amen? We only love because He has loved us first. In the timeless and emphatic words of our Savior, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. We need to realize that if there is a problem, it isn't going to be solved by tightening the rules or issuing threats, right? It's going to be solved when our hearts are right with Christ and we decide to work with each other. And that happens in churches, happens in families, happens in husband and wife relationships, friendships. That's where unity begins and ends. It was God's great love and His alone that reached down and saved you and me. That ought to be all the motivation we need to live in the same way with each other, right? His love makes all the difference in the world. Our unity is motivated not only by a comfort that exhorts us, His love that consoles us, but also, Paul says, by the Spirit that connects us. Verse 1 again, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, he says. Did you know that we don't have to produce unity in the church? That we already have it. It's produced by the Spirit that is inside each one of us. 
We do, however, have to guard it, Paul says. Preserve it. Maintain it. So how far will you go to preserve unity? Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3 says, You are joined together with peace through the Spirit, so make every effort to continue together in this way. Friends, we are inextricably and irreversibly connected to each other. Conjoined. We who are believers in Christ are part of one body. One body. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13 says, Christ is like a single body which has many parts. It is still one body, even though it is made up of different parts. In the same way, all of us, whether Jews or Gentiles, whether slaves or free, have been baptized into the one body by the same Spirit, and we have all been given this Spirit to drink. Not only that, but we're not just part of one body, but the Scripture says that we're part of each other as well. Romans 12, 5 says, So it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body. We all belong to each other. We belong to each other. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Folks, we're tied to one another by a supernatural power that is beyond our control. The Holy Spirit. And what God has joined together, let no man even begin to try and separate. Believe me, people, the target of the enemy is to get us separated from each other. No question about it. The strategy of the devil is to keep people separated from one another in a hell of isolation and independence, says J.B. Buckingham, relating their lives to each other only superficially. While we are called on by God to sharpen our individualism, that is never to be done separately or independently from the members of the family of God. Those are good words. And this is by God's design. Listen to these words by someone I truly admire. Sometimes in church circles when people feel lonely, we will tell them not to expect too much from human relationships, that there is inside every human being a God-shaped void that no human can fill. Right? You've heard that. I've preached that. You've said that probably. That is absolutely true. But apparently, according to the writer of Genesis, God creates inside this this man, this human, a kind of human-shaped void that God himself will not fill. Read Genesis. That's why woman was created, right? No substitute will fill this need for you in human relationship. Not money, not achievement, not busyness, not books, not even God himself. It is not good for man to be alone, God said. Even though this man was in a state of sinless perfection, he was alone, and God said it was not good. Community is what you were created for. It was what I was created for. It's God's desire for your life. It's the one indispensable condition for human flourishing. According to Jean Venier, a community is not simply a group of people who live together and love each other. 
It is a place of resurrection. What does that all mean, practically speaking? It means that my Christianity affects yours, and yours affects mine. If I mess up, you get hurt. If you mess up and you backslide, it hurts me. Your participation in this church directly affects every other member in it. That's why Paul so adamantly charges in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, God has so composed the body so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, he says, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. That means that every person redeemed by the blood of Christ needs each other. Whether Baptist or Methodist or Pentecostal or Assemblies of God or Roman Catholic or Episcopalians or Lutherans or men and women in the same local body, there is only one true church. One true church, and it is comprised of all those who by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, have been born again by the Spirit of God. One church. Paul made it clear when he listed the sevenfold unity that we have in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Our motivation to unity is the fact that we have fellowship through one spirit. Donald Gray Barnhouse said that a man who professes to be in fellowship with Christ and who deliberately rejects fellowship with other believers is in a deplorable state. God says that he's walking in dark, darkness and that he is lying and that he is not practicing the truth. And the Apostle John said the same exact thing in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He writes, so we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we're living in the light as God himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Friends, our unity is motivated by the facts. If we have Christ living in us, there is a comfort that exhorts us, his comfort a love that consoles us, Christ's love, a spirit that connects us, the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, we have a compassion that distinguishes us from the rest of the world. Verse 1, Philippians 2 again. If any affection and compassion, Paul says. It's the compassion of Christ that distinguishes the church from any other human organization, or it should be, Shouldn't it? The King James Version calls this the bowels and mercies instead of compassions. The bowels or intestines were considered by the Greeks, as you probably know, to be the seed of the emotions and tender affections of a person. And the compassion Paul's talking about here describes the feeling in your gut that you have of another person's misery. That's what compassion is. 
If Christ lives in us, then we should be sensitive to the hurts of others, not indifferent to it. Jesus was tuned in to those around him. And his sensitivity to people's pain shows up recurrently in the Gospels. And you've read it. Our English translations put it this way. He was moved with compassion or his heart went out to them. That sounds kind of cold though, doesn't it? Not real deep. But the deep physical flavor of the Greek word for compassion really gets at the fact that Jesus' heart was torn in two and his gut was really torn up inside about people. Here's the beauty of the incarnation of Jesus. He understands our hates and our loves. He understands our delights and our fears and our joys and our sorrows and our brokenness. He is compassion. And that kind of inward tenderness is what we are compelled to grant to each other. When people in the body of Christ make it a point to identify with each other's hurts and begin to tenderly care for one another, it creates this atmosphere unlike anything else in the world. You know, we're quick to say that we love each other. But is it visceral? Is there a gut-level connection between us? Tenderness and compassion are major motivators toward unity. Yet how much of it's being eaten away by the influence of a cynical world around us? It's just eroding away. I read that one of the most thorough research projects on relationships is called the Alameda County Study. Headed by a Harvard social scientist, it tracked the lives of 7,000 people over nine years. Researchers found that the most isolated people were three times more likely to die than those with strong relational connections. People who had bad health habits, such as smoking or poor eating habits, obesity or alcohol use, but had strong social ties, lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits but were isolated, believe it or not. In other words, it's better to eat Twinkies with good friends than to eat broccoli alone. <laughs> Harvard researcher Robert Putnam notes that if you belong to no groups but decide to join one, this is what he says, quote, you cut your risk of dying over the next year in half, unquote. That's how we should promote small groups around here. <laughs> Want to increase your, your chances of living? <laughs> it's true. More and more these days, people opt for isolation over community. Don't they? You say, nah. Not with social networking. <laughs> I could show you videos that I've watched, and you've probably seen them yourself people on trains and people in bus stations and people walking into buildings because their, their noses are stuck in their smartphones. Husbands and wives sitting across from each other at the table texting each other. And we think that's a funny joke, but I've seen it actually happening in restaurants. We're just isolated from each other with this pseudo-community that we think that we have. 
We want to be left alone. I hear it all the time. I don't feel like going to that thing or that group, and I don't really feel like... You know what? The front porch has been replaced with the back deck, hasn't it? Translation, leave us alone. Us for no more. Listen to Jesus' words concerning the days before his return in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12. For many others, the overwhelming spread of evil will do them in nothing left of their love but a mound of ashes. If anything should distinguish Christians from the rest of the world, it should be tender-heartedness. Amen? It's the oil that greases the gears of tension, stress. It allows the mechanisms to work freely. We need to have a heart with each other. There was another study reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, you know, too. 276 volunteers were infected with a virus that produces the common cold. How would you like to volunteer for that one? No thanks. They must have been paying pretty well. The study found that people with strong emotional connections did four times better fighting off illness than those who were more isolated. These people were less susceptible to colds had less virus and produced significantly less mucus than relationally isolated subjects. Not making this up. They produced less mucus. This means that it is literally true. Unfriendly people are snottier than friendly people. <laughs> the facts are right here, folks. In black and white. Unity is motivated by what we have in Christ. A comfort that exhorts us, a love that consoles us, a spirit that connects us, and a compassion that distinguishes us from the rest of the world. When these things are present and practiced under the control of the Holy Spirit, unity is the byproduct. You can't help it. Differences are patched up. Broken relationships are healed. Bickerings are buried. Joy is experienced. Empty seats are filled. The mundane and the routine become exciting opportunities. The news of God's grace spreads. Revival can break out in that kind of an atmosphere. Refreshment breaks in. And you know what? God is glorified. God is glorified. That is what people should see in us. If our motivation toward unity is our assurance in Christ then the mindset of unity stems from our oneness in Christ. Verse 2, Philippians 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And maintaining unity depends upon our commitment to a few key things. Number one, we must be of one mind, it says here. One mind. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Paul says, give me something to rejoice about. Agree. You say, is that even possible? It's not only possible, but it's necessary, Paul says. We need to be of the same mind in our vision, our mission, our pursuits and goals as a church. Otherwise, we're just fighting a losing battle. Granted, we'll never agree on every detail of everything we try to accomplish. That's not what Paul's saying here. 
Remember, it's not about uniformity. It's about unity. He's also not suggesting that we compromise the truth for the sake of unity. He's saying that there is a higher, more compelling vision than a fulfilling our own agenda. And it's so often repeated in the New Testament, it is impossible to ignore. Romans chapter 12, verse 16, for example, says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Turn over to chapter 15 and verse 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. We must be of one mind. Secondly, we must be of one heart. One heart, Paul says. Maintaining the same love is the way he puts it. That means that whether or not we agree on every point and every item, that we will maintain a mutual love and respect for one another. Amen? One of my instructors described it as understanding toleration. Understanding toleration. Love tolerates a lot as long as truth is not breached. Above all, says Peter, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Friends, Peter wasn't messing around here. He wasn't attempting to give us something to add to our collection of quotable quotes. He was dead serious. The command to love is the most repeated command in the New Testament. Fifty-five times. If we don't love people, we don't love each other. Nothing else we do matters, folks. Nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 and 2 explicitly states that we can perform all kinds of things in the church that seem like ministry, but if we don't have love, then we're nothing but movement and noise. Movement and noise, movement and noise. Nothing, Paul says, can make up for a lack of love. In the words of one pastor, love draws people in like a magnet. A lack of love, well, it just scatters them, drives them away. What is it that people see and experience when they come into the church? Because first impressions are everything, you know. What do they see? It bears repeating that all of us need to be deeply concerned about creating this climate of love which is conducive to healthy spiritual growth. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not suggesting that our primary purpose, aim, is to impress people. It should be to influence people. Influence them for Christ. And they are most influenced when they encounter people who are of one mind, one heart, and one soul. One soul. We must be of one soul, Paul says here. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit. Literally, it says to think the one thing. It means to be of one accord, united in one spirit, literally being soul to soul. Paul says that a church with true unity will act as if one soul activated them. 
Harmony happens when people share the same ambitions and passions for Christ. And so we must be focused then, fourthly, on one purpose. One purpose. Intent on one purpose, Paul says in verse 2. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27 says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. One mind, one heart, one soul, one purpose. What's the secret? Alexander McLaren, an old commentator, said, Quote, it is having our hearts directed to Christ that makes us one. He is the bond and center of unity. Make sense? I've said this a thousand times, and I love this statement because it creates the picture in my mind. If you're a musician, you'll relate to this too. But if you tune a hundred pianos to the same tuning fork, they will all be in tune with each other. They will. And our tuning fork is Jesus Christ. See, I don't need to be in tune with you or try to tune myself to you or you or you or you. All I need to do is tune myself to Christ and you tune yourself to Christ and we're going to be in tune with each other. And then Paul says we must commit to one plan. One plan. And here it is, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And we could go on to verse 5, which explains even more, but we're supposed to have the attitude that Christ had. The work of building community, wrote John Ortberg, is the noblest work any person can do. The archenemy of community, you know, is self-centeredness. It is the number one destroyer of being one mind, one heart, and one soul. You know what humility of mind really is? It's living by the mindset that if it comes down to a choice between me and you, it's you. It's what one man called the shyness of love. The shyness of love. It's the ceaseless circle of offering ourselves to one another in joy-filled, mutually submissive, generous, creative, self-giving love. And it is exhibited in, all, in the only perfect form of community that we will ever know. Community is what the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have been doing from the beginning of time. The life of community exhibited by the Trinity is our pattern for our lives. It's what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer. Neil Plantinger wrote this. He said, the persons within the Godhead exalt each other, commune with each other, defer to one another. Each person, so to speak, makes room for the other two. That's what Paul is getting at. He says, forget yourself. It's not really about you at all. It's about Christ, and it's about presenting Him to the world. Are we prepared to do that? Because, friends, people are dying to see Christ in the world. You know, many people view the church with the attitude of the comic strip character I began with earlier. They look at it at the church this way. Oh, I love the church, but it's people I can't stand. 
But you know what? Jesus loves people. And the bride of Christ, the church, is people. It is people. And the world outside of these walls, folks, I will tell you, I will tell you as a matter of fact, they are not confused about that fact. They are not confused about the fact that the church is people. And when we're working together for the cause of Christ, one body infused with one spirit called in one hope by one Lord with one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and pouring out through all of us and living vibrantly in all of us, you know what? It's life-giving to them. So let's be about the task, as my mentor said, of giving people Jesus. The only true way and life there is. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the words of truth contained in your word that exhorts us toward true unity. Lord, let us be about Jesus Christ, who is our one Savior, our one Lord, our one Shepherd, the one head of the church who leads us and guides us and protects us and fills us with every ounce of power that we need to perform the work that he's called us to do. Let us be in tune with him that we may be in tune with one another for the sake of your name and for the sake of this kingdom that you are building. We pray, Jesus.